I'm Doug Fullington. I am PMB's Manager of Audience Education, and today is our closing repertory program of the season. This is our American Stories Rep with three ballets by Jerome Robbins, George Balanchine, and Twyla Tharp. It's quite a lineup of names. And I'll be talking to you about each of these ballets in the order that we'll see them, but want to welcome your questions anytime, and I'll try and leave some time at the end for questions as well. But uh, an exciting day. We also have our season encore performance tonight, which is sort of a gala-type program. It's at 6.30. We have a couple dancers retiring, and we'll be looking back at the season, a couple extra things on the program as well. So if you're up for a, a double header, you're welcome to come tonight at 6.30. But let's talk about the ballets we're going to be seeing in an hour here. We start with Fancy Free by Jerome Robbins. Really a, an iconic work in American dance and musical theater history. This was Robbins' first ballet. He created it in 1944 for a ballet theater, which is now American Ballet Theater. They're still going strong, just celebrated their 75th anniversary. And along with Robbins, we have uh, in the credits uh, Leonard Bernstein, composer, and the scenic designer Oliver Smith. So these three young men were working together and had a hit with Fancy Free, which then became On the Town. So On the Town came from Fancy Free, the musical and then the film. It really put these three on the American cultural map of the time. And it's nice to see Fancy Free because it's that first iteration of this story and this collaboration between these artists. Uh, Robbins also uh, performed in Fancy Free. The role that Seth Orza will dance today is the Robbins role. And uh, the role that Seth's wife, Sarah Orza, will dance today was created by Janet Reed. Janet was dancing for ballet theater at that time and then went on to dance for Balanchine at New York City Ballet and then eventually moved here to Seattle and she was the founder of our school, the Pacific Northwest Ballet School in the early 1970s. And she was the one responsible for uh, really uh, getting the staging of that first Nutcracker up in 1975. Were any of you here for that? Lou Christensen Nutcracker? I was here. Okay. Uh, I was still in the single digits, but I was here with my folks and my brothers. So that was our first Nutcracker here. And then uh, we're on our third one now. So anyway, nice history with uh, Fancy Free. Uh, just a little bit more about the cast while we're on it. Seth and Jonathan and James uh, are our three sailors. Uh, Peter Bull made the point that all these guys were born in the same year, and Seth and James from San Francisco have known each other since they were 11 years old. And they met Jonathan when they were 14. So Jonathan came out to, yeah, isn't it something? Jonathan came out to San Francisco. They were all, I, there, some of them were in uh, death in Venice there, and then Jonathan was... Uh, training in New York, and Seth and James moved to New York to School of American Ballet, and they all studied under Peter Bull. So a uh, very small world, and uh, they're a very tight-knit cast, as you can imagine, and so it's really, it's been fun to uh, have them on stage all together in this uh, in this ballet. Uh, it's set in 1944. It was set in the year it was made. It was wartime. It's three sailors on shore leave in New York City. Uh, they go to a bar. They meet a few women. There are a lot of antics. There's beer. There's a brawl. Uh, it's very of its time. 
And uh, we get a lot of comments about that. It's hard to it's, it's hard a little bit to know how to look at a ballet like this because yes, it's very of its time. Would it be choreographed this way now? Probably not, but uh, it does show us uh, what the uh, sort of uh, atmosphere of the day was and what uh, was on Robin's mind in creating this and so forth. And so it's presented to you the way that Robin's choreographed it. The nice thing about that is Robin's works are controlled by, a, uh, there's a trust, the Robin's Rights Trust, and they, what we call, administer his works. Before Robin's died, he selected a handful of dancers with whom he had worked that would uh, continue to stage his ballets. I'm not sure what the situation is with the musical theater works, and that's in, in a sense a much broader uh, genre there. But uh, there are Robin stagers, and they, of course, do their very best to not only teach the steps and the counts, just as Robin's had them, but also to try and communicate to the dancers what he wanted. And then with Robin's, that's uh, very important because he was very particular, and that's a kind of a massive understatement. Uh, apparently in the studio, Robbins, and this is common knowledge if you were to read a uh, biography of Robbins or speak with people that worked with him, uh, really, really tough in the studio. Uh, choreography was a slow process, it was very exacting, and he'd come up with lots of versions of things. The final piece he ever choreographed took two years, and Peter Bull can tell you all about it because he was in it. Um, and there'd be, you know, this one section, version A, B, B1, B2, C, and he'd want to see different parts put together. I want to see A, D, C2, and F go. And uh, so he'd, there'd be a fair amount of indecision and uh, second guessing, but then he would settle on a particular version, and that really was the version, and that pretty much was not going to change. And the dancer is not invited to... Um, uh, act on inspiration in the heat of the moment. It just doesn't work that way. And I am not trying to ruin Fancy Free for you, but it's interesting because that we have that over here, and then when we see Robin's ballets, at least this is my experience, to me they come off with a great deal of spontaneity. I mean, that one is a credit to him, it's also a credit to the artist, and also that person who's linking the two, the stager who is teaching it now. Um, Robbins had such a gift for creating relationships on stage between people, which is so ironic because he seems to have had a very difficult time with that personally. But somehow what he couldn't do himself, he could do in the ballets and in in the musicals too. You think of West Side Story and The King and I and Fiddler on the Roof and all those different kinds of relationships, family relationships, romantic relationships, uh, the gangs and West Side Story. He had a gift for this uh, overtly in a, in a narrative like Fancy Free and also uh, in more subtle ways in a ballet like Dances at a Gathering, which doesn't have a story per se, but is very much about a community of people. And really these, for him, I think these were people and not dancers. The dance is wonderful, but it, I think it is more in service to uh, the relationships between the people that he creates. But they're very specific and there's one, there's one way. It means though that when you see a Robbins ballet, you're really seeing uh, what uh, Robbins wanted to the best of, 
the ability of the dancers and the stager who has taught it. We've been really fortunate this year for our two Robbins works, the concert and Fancy Free, to have Judith Fugate with us. Uh, Judy, as we call her, worked with Robbins. She spent her whole career at New York City Ballet. She also stages Balanchine works. She staged the Nutcracker uh, for us with Peter Bull. And uh, she also is our Coppelia stager. So she was here lots this year. And just has a great way of finding that balance between demanding exactly what's needed and also doing it in a way that allows the dancer to succeed in what could be really difficult uh, with something like Fancy Free. Because when you watch it, it's so neat. You can really see and hear how Robbins and Bernstein were really were collaborating just measure by measure. You know, there's three sailors and they may snap their fingers or uh, sort of uh, uh, salute, if you will, to the women. And one, two, three, it's in the music. It's very, very particular. And it's very uh, exact. And, and it's so wonderful to see it then played out live and to uh, create, again, that, that symbiotic relationship between the dance and the movement. So I think very exciting. Uh, the dancers have a terrific time. Uh, performing this work. They say it's a lot of fun. It's tough. Sailors, uh, they each have solos. They're really long. They're demanding. And they each have a, a certain character. And uh, the, guy, the guys love doing it. So I could go on and on about this. But uh, you've got a gold cast today for this. Both of our casts are. But there's nice history with these folks you're going to see today. So that's Fancy Free. Then we have our first intermission. And we move on to Square Dance. I like to tell this little anecdote. Edward Villella, who was a principal dancer at New York City Ballet, originated roles, created roles for Robbins and Balanchine, many. He said that working with uh, Balanchine would be like having a tailor come in and take all your measurements and then go away and create for you this wonderful, uh, perfectly fitting suit. And with Robbins, it would be like being given a wonderful perfectly tailored suit and being asked to fit inside of it. So I love that because both suits are really great, but the, the, uh, the way you get in it and how it was made is a different story. Balanchine was known for being, uh, one, very quick in the studio, and he would like to point that out sometimes too, I hear. And uh, very easygoing with the dancers, very willing to uh, look at what the dancer has to offer and, and uh, capitalize on that. Also challenge the dancer, but really know how to make that dancer look good. Even a dancer who might uh, have, say, a chronic injury that they have to manage, he could work around it in such a way that the dancer looks uh, sort of fully formed, if you will, really shows the dancer to his or her best. Very willing to alter his choreography over time. He'd come back to something. He might create, uh, throw out an old dance and create something new for someone. So you get these different versions that, uh, that uh, become sort of part of history. So really different way of working from Robbins. Square dance came at a, at what was one, a momentous time for Balanchine, but a very difficult time too. It was made in, uh, it premiered in 57. In 56, New York City Ballet had gone on tour to Europe and uh, Balanchine's wife at that time, Tannikeel Leclerc, was uh, uh, contracted polio and her final performance was in Copenhagen and she came off in the wings and that was the last she uh, 
danced ever, and she was in a wheelchair the rest of her life. She still taught, and she was still fairly active in the dance community, but it was very tragic. And Balanchine stayed with her in uh, Denmark to help her stabilize and begin to rehabilitate. And eventually, after many months, he came back to New York City Ballet. And I think the artistic uh, energy had really built up over time because he created four works uh, really at the same time, one of which was Square Dance, another was Agon, uh, completely different. Commissioned score by Stravinsky, considered a modern masterpiece. Another was Guno Symphony, a big tutu ballet. And I think the other one was Stars and Stripes, but I could be wrong and I, I keep forgetting to look it up. But four very different works, all in a very short span of time, which nobody really does. That's a pretty tall order to have all of that information and all of that music uh, in you. Square Dance, you look at the composers and ask maybe, well, why is this called square dance? Because these are Italian Baroque composers. We've got Vivaldi, we've got Corelli. It's a string uh, orchestra. Uh, when you watch the ballet, the choreography is made up of small, fast steps, which we call petite allegro, small, fast steps, that come from the French 19th century school. These are uh, steps that the dancers uh, perform each day in their class. If class is, is about 90 minutes, they might get to Petit Allegro at about minute number 70 or so. Your body needs to be warmed up. It's a lot of small jumping. You're using your legs and feet a lot to what we call beat, one beating in front of the other. That gives a sort of fluttering effect. So articulation is very important, strength, pliability. And it's all supposed to be done with uh, what looks like a great amount of ease. In reality, if you're jumping up and down for any length of time, it's pretty tiring. But uh, that's part of the, uh, the uh, magic of ballet, so to speak. So we have these Italian Baroque composers and this French 19th century choreography, and this thing's called square dance. Well, what Balanchine had done was ask a square dance caller to come in, it was Elisha Keeler, and to call this ballet. So Keeler had to come in to rehearsal and look at these steps and sometimes could make a connection between that step and a square dance step, and he'd use that uh, in his calling. And sometimes he'd just have to make things up. So he'd say something like, here comes Johnny down the track, or here comes Pat down the track, watch your legs go wickety-whack, something like that. And he would call this ballet, and he was on stage, and the orchestra was on stage too. So we had the dance, we had the orchestra, we had the caller. There's, some of this was filmed, and it's in the Balanchine documentary that came out, I think, in 84, the year after he died. And there's hay bales, and there are carnival lights, and there's dancing, and, and it was really kind of a show, all these kind of disparate elements, the Italian, the French, the square dance caller, and also some of the patterns, to my eye, patterns of the ensemble recall square dance patterns. I don't know, I did square dancing in grade school. I don't know if any of you have done square dancing, but there's do-si-do, -si -do, there are group things, there are lines and so forth, and we get these sort of throughout square dance. Another aspect here is simply that Balanchine really loved living and working in the United States. He just loved it. He loved American culture. He loved the opportunities opportunities he had here. You know, he grew up in Russia. He came through the revolution and was a dancer in Petrograd, which had been St. Petersburg in the early 20s. Very difficult time. Hardly any resources. They would, you know, burn the chairs in the theater school just to have heat. 
it was that kind of situation. Very, you know, day to day, not sure if you were going to make it. He was able to leave Russia and do some guest artist work in Germany in 1924. Eventually was hired by Diaghilev, Serge Diaghilev, and worked for Ballet Russe till 1929, and Diaghilev died. Then Balanchine had a few years where he really tried to make a go of it in Western Europe. He tried Denmark and England and France and just couldn't get anything permanent. And then Lincoln Kirstein from the U.S., who had been following the Diaghilev company and following Balanchine's work, invited him to the States, and they established the School of American Ballet uh, in 34, I believe, and then New York City Ballet eventually in 1948. And uh, Balanchine just loved the U.S. He loved road trips, westerns, John Wayne. He loved Wonder Woman. Francia Russell would say he would, you know, we'd be in rehearsal and he'd be choreographing and it'd be, wouldn't be going, you know, be going a little slow, so he'd want a coffee break and then Wonder Woman would come up, so... Yeah, lots of different things. I see Wonder Woman in the ballets from the 1970s, but that's a whole different uh, that's a whole different discussion. But when we get one of those in the repertory again, I'll talk about it. Anyway, so that's square dance. But as Balanchine tended to do, when these ballets would live in the repertory for a while, he would begin to uh, take away some elements that he felt eventually were extraneous. So. Eventually, the orchestra went in the pit, and the collar was eliminated, and any of the sort of accoutrement, if you will, and, and square dance became a pure dance ballet, with the dancers the only ones on stage. And that's interesting, because we performed square dance on tour in New York this year at City Center, where it premiered, and that is not a big stage. When we spaced it, you know, did our first rehearsal and decided exactly, you know, what wing and what marks are you on, uh, it felt a little bit cramped, and we thought, you know, how'd they do this with the orchestra on stage and the dancing? But, uh, but somehow they did it. But uh, not only that, Balanchine added in 1976 a solo for the leading man. But it wasn't, I don't think it's the kind of solo we might expect. It has a lot of jumps and turns, and it's very athletic, like a lot of the rest of square dance. It's completely different. It's quite sober, and it's uh, quiet. And the man is asked to do a lot of walking across the stage, and it really becomes about carriage of the body and noble, uh, a noble sort of carriage and really presents the dancer in a different light. I think the men love to dance this solo because it is so different. It's very unique in the repertory. It was made for a dancer named Bart Cook, who I think was very inspirational to Balanchine in the 70s because he made some changes to other ballets in roles that Bart Cook danced. And so uh, you'll see that solo today. Kyle Davis will dance it. He's uh, paired with Lita Biasucci, who, who has danced this role a lot now and is incredibly exciting in it. She, the, both of these dancers are great technicians, which is what is required here by the choreography. And uh, I saw them perform it last night. It was Kyle's debut, and he'll do it for his second time today, and just uh, very exciting. So. Um, Looking forward to that with Square Dance. And then we have our second intermission, and we go on to Twyla Tharp's Waiting at the Station. So we've had a ballet from the 40s and the 50s, and this one is from three years ago, 2013. Almost three years ago when Twyla made it for us in August and September of 2013. It's the third work she's choreographed for us and the seventh work, Tharp work, to enter the repertory. We started building a Tharp repertory 
right when Peter came, uh, Nine Sinatra Songs was the first piece by Twilight. It's often one she'll uh, give, so to speak, to a company when they want to start doing her works. It's for couples, and it's very sort of tidy. And uh, we moved on from there to larger works, and now we have this uh, large and complex work waiting at the station made just for us. Twilight collaborated with Alan Toussaint on the music. He is the composer. He was a New Orleans-based R&B composer, singer, uh, producer, mentor to many in the field. And we were so fortunate that when we premiered Waiting at the Station, he came out and he played the piano for the performances. There's a trio of piano, bass, and drums, and then they are supported by a full orchestra, lots of brass and strings. And Alan would sit at the piano in the lime green suit. He looked amazing. And uh, played the whole thing from memory every time. It was terrific. And he was booked to perform with us this time around as well, but he was on tour in Spain in November, and he performed uh, one evening, and he died later that evening, very suddenly, right in the line of work. And... Uh, it was just a real loss, and so of course we, we miss having him here and have a lot of good memories. Alan Dameron has taken over the piano uh, solo and I think does a great job. He had alternated with Alan Toussaint last time and had the experience of working with him, so I, I know that he's channel, channeling his spirit in playing these great pieces. Uh, you're seeing a number of members of the original cast today, uh, particularly James Moore and Price Sudarth, in the role of the father and the son. Now, in the program, we have these names, father, son, three fates. So there's a story going on here. It's interesting, when, when to my, in my experience, when Twilight creates a, a ballet, she comes prepared with lots and lots of research, sometimes steps as well, but tons of research from very disparate sources. I know for this one she had read Tolstoy about, uh, with regard to the train. She had uh, incorporated a number of ideas from current events. She doesn't explain all of these things, but she kind of drops comments every so often and you realize. So I knew there was a story here and I said, you know, I'd like to write a program note and and uh, so forth, she said, well, okay, you can try. So I came up with this note that was, you know, X long, and I gave it to her, and it got shorter and shorter until it was like one sentence, which is what we had in 2013, basically about a man who's at the end of his life and sort of ready to say goodbye, and that was it, so, okay. Um, and I really actually understand that. Uh, Mark Morris was very similar. They like the audience, they like us to come to a work without a preconceived idea, without being told what to think, which I think is great. And I hope I don't tell you what to think too much in these talks. They want you to come as you are on that particular day and see this piece and see what you, you make of it. What, how do you perceive it? How does it make you feel? What do you, how do you think it was performed? Do you like the music and so forth? And you might feel differently tomorrow if you saw it again because you're a little bit different tomorrow. And I like that approach. That said, next door we went to her website a few months ago which has been revamped and there's this long note <laughs> about waiting at the station, which is great. It's better than what I wrote. So I put it in the Encore program. So uh, I will tell you a little bit about that, even though she probably wouldn't like me talking about it. But just a little bit. This is a complicated work on stage. There's a lot going on. The follow spots, the spotlights help direct your eye, but there are several layers of uh, 
characters and activities going on. I think it's nice to just be ready for that if it's your first time. So we, we do have a father and a son. The father knows that it's, he's near the end of his life. He appears to be estranged from the son. And at the beginning of the ballet, in the first song, the son is looking for him at the train station where the father is and this whole community of people waiting at the station, if you will. And it's clear the father really doesn't want anything to do with the son. He, he just tries to push him off and get away from him. So the father's kind of running from the son. The father is also running from three kind of mysterious tall women in gold who really are a glamorous version of the Grim Reaper, I think. They are, they're telling this guy, your time's coming and we're coming for you. So he's, he's, this guy's on the run a little bit. He's agitated, he's nervous. Uh, along with that, we have this whole community of people and Twyla writes really nicely about them. They're represented by two kind of leading couples. They're married, they're together, we don't really know. But uh, through their activities, I think she's showing us sort of all the different kinds of situations you get into when you, when you live with people. You have fun together, you fight, you get jealous, you're competitive, uh, you want attention. Uh, and so all of this plays out with these two couples. And then on down, then there are two sort of uh, supporting couples with them, and then the whole ensemble of dancers as well. So we have this, all these many layers here that, that uh, are woven through. But really, with the father and the son, we follow them. And as we move through these different songs, the father has a change of heart and realizes he would like to uh, reconnect with his son and maybe pass on some of his life experience, which take the form of dance steps. Uh, because this is a ballet. And uh, eventually the three fates, uh, the father warms up and becomes accepting of that as well. And so they eventually take him. And then there's a short kind of um, uh, bridge or interlude section where the son leads a, a, a tharp version of a jazz funeral that, that goes into a sort of crazy Mardi Gras celebration. But after that... I like this section. It's an epilogue, as Twyla calls it, where she allows the father to come back briefly and kind of make amends, if you will. And uh, he's clearly in a different place. It reminds me of Scrooge on Christmas morning. He wakes up, and he's a different person, and he's able to effect some change. Uh, and the father's able to do that here. And finally, the train arrives, and he's, he's ready to get on the train. So that is sort of the trajectory of this. And again, probably said way too much. Don't tell Twyla. But uh, she did write the note on the website. So it's nice to know. Um, another nice aspect of, of this, this is this, the first time we've revived the work after that initial run. And Keon Gaines is our stager. Keon was one of the... Uh, original dancers in the two couples. Uh, William Lin Yi is dancing that role today. And Keon was also Twyla's assistant in 2013 for the choreographic process. She was here uh, for a number of weeks and Keon was helping her. And once she'd get something done, he'd be responsible for rehearsing it and just really be at her side and hear what she was intending with different parts of the ballet. So it's been really fun for the company to work with Keon because of course we know him so well. He just retired last year. And I think, uh, 
his work combined with the input from those who were in the original cast, particularly James and Price, has really helped us get it right back up to, to I think, the level that, that we had it when we originally performed it. So uh, exciting to have this work back in the repertory. So those are our three pieces. And then after the performance, we do have a, our last Q&A of the season. Peter Bull will be here with Kyle Davis, who will just have danced the lead in uh, Square Dance. And Kyle's also in the ensemble of Waiting at the Station. So there will be lots to uh, talk to him about. Kyle also has a ballet of his own going on the Next Step program on Saturday, performed by the professional division uh, students in the school. So a lot going on there. So come Come on down here for that after the performance. And uh, we have a few minutes uh, for questions if you'd like to ask anything. Uh, yes, please. Um, is waiting at the station just um, PNB now, or is it going to go anywhere? And how's, how's that plan? And would Keon be traveling to the station? Right, all, all good questions. Is Really, is any other ballet company going to perform waiting at the station? I think it's just about to go out of exclusivity. because. I'm guessing, and I haven't seen the contract, that there are three years when we'd be the only company to perform it. And there have been some, some people have come to watch it, have traveled here to watch it, but we haven't taken it on tour yet. And if we do that, then that will give it more exposure. And uh, it also will sort of depend on how Tharp and, uh, uh, and the Tharp folks promote it. But I think Keon would be the one. He's sort of the only one who knows the whole thing. So if another company were to want to acquire it, Keon would go and teach it. And uh, that company would either build their own scenery and costumes or they'd rent, they'd ask to rent from us. So it'll be interesting to see. It uh, has a lot of musical theater aspects to it, so it sort of bridges that gap between Twyla's musical theater uh, works and the ballet works. So we'll see if there's interest in that. Yeah, it'd be nice if there was. Anybody else with a question? Yes, please. Twyla does have family here, uh, but she lives in uh, New York. Like, did she grow up here? Well, I think she started out in Indiana, and then I think they moved around, but she's not from here. But one of her brothers, it's either Stanley or Stanford, those are her brother's names, <laughs> lives here. St yeah, Stan. And there's Twyla, and her sister is Twanette, and I kid you not. So four kids with, yeah, quite the set of names. So, uh, but she's not from here, and she actually wasn't able to come this time uh, for the staging. Really, once she's done a work, it's history to her, and she's very forward-thinking, very driven, and has just uh, been celebrating 50 years of working in the theater and has been sort of touring nationally to celebrate that. So uh, we're a part of that with this piece and our other repertory, so we've enjoyed that. So. You know, we are past time a little bit, so I want to let you go. I want to remind you to come back down here after the show if you want. Encore performance tonight. Thanks for being here and supporting the ballet. Have a great day. <laughs>